I was going to give a line-by-line uh, -line systematic commentary on the Bodhi Karata Sutta, <clears throat> but it's much too hot for that. So I will draw upon it from time to time and then just rant and rave, <laughs> hopefully staying reasonably close to the subject. A lot of what the, this teaching, and it's not just in this particular sutta, put into other words what a lot of what it is saying is pointing to the immense significance of the present moment. Can't be, there are no words that can exaggerate it, immense significance of the present moment. In a nutshell, our wounds from the past are healed, can be healed in the present moment. Probably all of us have some wounds that just from in the course of living, being born and growing up and so forth. Where else can you heal it but in the present moment, bringing the practice to it in ways that I think are familiar to everyone in this room. It's also the best way to take, care, to take care of your life. That is, not only does it heal the past, but it's a way of, and I'll give you a little uh, teaching of the Buddha, of sustaining and nourishing one's life through the present moment. That's where the real food is. And it's also creating a beneficial future as best you can. It's planting healthy seeds for a future that has a chance of being more beneficial. Uh, because how you live in the present, are, those are the seeds for the future. And so a lot can go on, including immense suffering, including very deep awakening, and all of the virtues and uh, great values that, have, that you read about and hear about in terms of the Dharma, where else can it happen? Now, the context in which we started out last time was to see this as part of self-knowledge, self-knowing. Uh, at first, self-knowing is much more familiar with what all of us would recognize as just getting to know yourself better. And it's not like that ends. All along, you, can, uh, you learn about yourself. Some of it's useful. Some of it is just interesting or just that, just, just a piece of information. Uh, but a major area of learning about ourselves is our relationship to time. I doubt if that was part of our upbringing or our education. You know, I think it's very important that you learn your relationship to psychological time. Maybe here and there, like you don't have forever, grow up, etc. But uh, in this way, uh, it can be very shocking to the mind to hear that there's only now, that the future doesn't really exist, and that the past, in, the, in a profound way, doesn't exist. It doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, but I think, based on what we talked about last time, you understand what I'm, what I'm getting at. And so there's just this, there's just now. It's sometimes called the eternal present. 
And so how to, how to live in that eternal presence. Um, I want to start with, there were a number of uh, <coughs> questions that came up in group and a few notes uh, that I should clarify some things that were said last time. Uh, there were examples, and maybe they needed to be made even a little bit more concrete. The example of hot Buddha, cold Buddha, which I hope can be of some help or has been of some help for you during these past few days. By the way, some of the notes are just um, harmless questions, just at the end of a talk, at the end of a discussion group or something, have to do with how long is this heat wave going to continue? Uh, so, uh, future, uh, I don't really know, but I should have said, if I said, it'll be over by tonight and it'll be cool, then you would have felt great, whoever asked it. <laughs> or that it's going to go on for a while. I think the entire retreat is going to be like this. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> those of you who asked the question, you know where you were coming from, so I don't have to explain it. And it's a harmless and sensible question. In normal discourse, I'm making too much of it. But here, we dwell on even tiny things to illustrate what it's about. So the question about hot Buddha, cold Buddha, in the, in the teaching, um, if you recall, the student says, how do you practice when it's very hot and very cold? The teacher says, go to a place, go to that place where there is no hot and cold. Now, it's not uh, the Arctic Pole now and Hawaii in the winter, or Florida in the winter. Where is that place where there, where there is no hot and there is no cold? It's the mind. It's the only place to go because the, the mind is manufacturing hot and cold. And so if you go to the mind and see what the mind is adding to the temperature, then you've killed hot, you've killed cold, or you haven't made hot or cold. And so you're still hot, but you're not hot with a capital H. It's, to put it in more familiar terms, for those of you who've been practicing here, have come to IMS many, many times, you probably have gotten this teaching again and again. Let's say you have a pain in, in your knee or somewhere in your, in your body. And if you focus right in on the pain and are just mindful of it, you know that sometimes that can be a very one of the most useful things you can do. But if the mind wavers even a little bit, then suddenly thoughts come pouring in. The mind starts telling you what's happening. It starts commenting. And of course, the most devastating comment is that this is my knee that hurts. This is happening to me. Okay, And so it's in that it's that style of that, that vein of teaching. It's the two arrows teaching. Uh, I'll shift that over to this context. A person who has no practice or is uninstructed in these things, when a day like this comes, they're not only hot, they've already also made hot on top of the physical fact of hot. Uh, whereas somebody who's a practitioner is also hot but they don't make another hot on top of it. The two arrows, the first arrow is just the literal heat, the temperature, humidity. The second arrow uh, is one that we have the ability 
to prevent or at least to remove when we see it. That's what the mind adds to it by personalizing it, by uh, coming from its conditioning to interpret it, coming to despair, wanting to go home. Some people have liked it. Okay. The second uh, was doing loop. Um, in doing the loop, uh, the heat was there, the flies were there. Th this is, if I could uh, put this into words, uh, to the best of my understanding, what happened was understanding. That is, in seeing that the mind just wanted to be happy, and it wasn't happy because it was too hot and there were flies. So it invented a reality. It made up a reality of cold shower, and then it could feel good. Okay. Now, once I saw that, that's a piece of understanding. Uh, it's not just uh, a fixated gaze on the heat. It's once I saw what the mind was doing, the poor thing, it just really doesn't like this. <laughs> and uh, it has had a lot of practice inventing a different reality uh, to travel to and then feel a little bit better. So, but since I took it on as a practice to walk and to just be with the walking, I, I did that to myself. I, just, I set that as a practice. So then I was stuck with having to let go of shower, because that was, I was not fully with the walking. The part of the mind was taken up with something that made it feel better. That, that's all it is. Okay. I don't, maybe I'll, I'll just do, let's see. Yeah, I do need to, to read some of it just as a review for you. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see it right here, right here. You're not taken in, unshaken, and that's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today for who knows? Tomorrow, death. There's no bargaining with mortality and mortality's mighty horde. Whoever lives thus ardently, steadily, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day, so says the peaceful sage. Now, I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of this because I think you'll get the point. The Buddha then gives a, his own commentary on this. And those of you who know, it's the five khandhas is what he's talking about. Those constituents of what we call a, a, a person. And I'll, I'll just take one of them. I'm not going to go through all of them. And how monks does one chase after the past? One, this is one way you can. One gets carried away with a delight in the past. In the past, I had such, and such a form, or as I had such a body in the past. If you're in your golden years, as some of us are, you might reflect back when you had a different kind of body. Well, here it actually means a better body. But, and it makes you, no, I guess you could do that too, sure. Actually, I just thought of something. How are you? Okay. Uh, so the point is that you're, you're thinking about your, a past, your past body. In the past, I had such a feeling, Vedana. 
I had these kinds of feelings about things in the past, maybe a lot of pleasant feelings. In the past, I had such a perception. That's the, the, the khanda that distinguishes this from that in the mind. So it's a set of discerning categories. In the past, I had such, I had such a thought fabrication. That is, my mind had the following kinds of content, thoughts. thoughts. In the past, I had such a consciousness. In Buddhism, consciousness is to an object, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and so forth. That means in the past, you might be caught up in how your senses were. Okay, let me uh, put this down and just start to talk a little bit about that. Let's stay with the past for a while uh, and see how this practice can help us. Now, what what is suggested here is that uh, people may dip into the past and then get infatuated with it. That is, any of the things from the past, and in the process, of course, they're not in the present. Now, if the point of the practice is to be in the present, then doing that uh, as, uh, as uh, fulfilling as it might be uh, is not practicing. Uh, let me give you an example that may seem a little far-fetched. No, not far-fetched. Let's see. I told you I was going to rant and rave. I'm going to give you an example that's from my own, uh, my own experience fairly recently, a couple of them in fact, where I learned a lot about what this is, uh, was about for me and maybe it'll be helpful for you. Um, while leading a retreat in, at the New York Insight uh, Center, a meditation center in New York City, uh, I had the, the Sunday afternoon free before uh, uh, my wife and I were taking the train back. And she read in the paper that there was uh, a, something called a tenement museum and also a tour of the Lower East Side. It never occurred to me to go there, certainly not for many, many years. And why don't we do that? Now, that's where I was born. That's where I grew up. For those of you who don't know what a tenement is, those are the buildings that immigrants inhabited. But I'll tell you how the immigrants thought of it. We thought of it as those buildings where you stick as many people in as little space as possible. That's really what a tenement is. Probably doesn't say that in the dictionary. Uh, so we went to one which was a recreated an actual building with uh, clothing and books and eyeglasses and all kinds of uh, an Italian family and a Jewish family. And uh, I was quite naive. I mean, just open, not just innocent, really. And suddenly, uh, certain things started to come back to me about my past. And I couldn't talk for quite a while. Uh, what happened there was that I started to see, uh, did I come out of this? Did I grow up here? How could that be, uh, considering how my life has I've traveled? And I don't mean geographically, so much distance. Uh, seeing the size of what was called a bathroom, which is more like a telephone booth. No bathtub, no shower, etc. And my memories of living with my parents, uh, my, my mother's three sisters and brother, and both my grandparents. 
in a space like this, and yet I remembered being happy and full of love. But also, a lot of uh, stuff came in, some I don't have in words. Now, the first learning was actually interesting. It sort of opened me up and I saw something about my origins and a sense of myself. There really wasn't a lot of ego in it. There must have been some. And uh, here's how some of this go happens. By about the second or third telling, you know, right on the spot I was quiet and I didn't want to talk for a while. I was very moved by it. Uh, some of it was painful, a lot of it was pleasant, but most of it, it was, uh, how did I come from this? It, it conveyed to me the, the distance that I had traveled, socially, psychologically. And I came home and I told a few friends. And suddenly I started to notice the telling started to change a bit. Uh, from it just being a straight report of a fact and what I went through, I saw that it was promoting the self. What it was saying was, aren't I wonderful? I started here and I was a professor and now I've dropped that and I'm a Dharma teacher and uh, I know how to dress, I'm, I'm a real American guy. It picked up something on the way and it started, it kept changing a little bit and a little bit and I saw that there was some mileage coming from it. Now, if there were a Greek chorus here, you might, they might start singing, oh, don't, enjoy it, don't, don't start meditating, meditate your way out of it. I'm not being hard on myself, it's just that I did see it. And it's not that I was punishing myself for it, but I saw what the mind was doing, what the mind was taking materials from the past. And at first it was just factual, in quotes, because I don't know how accurate my memories were. But then it immediately started to use it from the present, present sense of myself. And uh, to skip the, the literal words, if you recall, uh, one of the, I, I think I did mention it, one of the things that happens is that uh, we spend a tremendous amount of time in the past and in the future. We're dominated by it. That's, that's what's being said. Did you find that to be true as you've, as you've lived out a couple of days since then. Maybe it's just someone's opinion. Maybe it's the Buddha's opinion and others since. In, uh, in seeing that, um, what you'll learn if you follow this is you'll see that the self is constantly using the materials of the past and the future to nourish itself, to build itself up. Uh, and in this case, it used materials in the past to enhance its sense of self in the present. <laughs> now, it wasn't that I beat myself up, is that I saw how fascinating the process was. My goodness. And I didn't even do it consciously. It's not like I was, let me see, how can I use these materials and uh, create a sense of myself that's impressive to my friends? It, it just happened. In other words, the ego is going to work, and that's what it knows how to do. So that's one use of the past. Um, there are so many others, I'm going to, I think I'm going to stay close to concrete examples. This other one is from my Aunt Esther. Sorry, it's a family night. Uh, all, my, both my parents are dead, my grandparents are dead, and all those people who lived in that place are dead except my Aunt Esther. She, we refer to her as the last of the Mohicans. In other words, 
Everyone's dead. Uh, and their husbands are dead. And their wives are dead. Okay, the men. So, Aunt Esther's left. And uh, she, she was a wonderful aunt. And I, so I call her periodically. To, she lives in Florida to just check in with my aunt. This is to give you a sense of the subtlety of how we as yogis need to, uh, it isn't a formula, none of these teachings are, I have to be sensitive as to how to use these teachings about time. So I would call my Aunt Esther up, I do, I call her up periodically and just check in with her and I know exactly what she's going to say. She's in her late 80s now and it's the same every time. One change, she had an operation for a brain tumor and it was only partially successful, so she's in pain a lot. At any rate, when this has been going on for a few years, whenever she starts to talk, she goes back into the past to escape the present. The present is made up of what? She's waiting for death. She's sick. She's housebound. Her son has just uh, uh, finished his third divorce and lost his third job or fourth job. Uh, her grandchildren don't call her, or at least not often enough. And here she is in Florida, but she's just about never can go out. People shop for her. So what we wind up talking about is Russia, where she grew up, and how great my mother was, and how cute she was, and how much she loved her, and everything under the sun, but now. And so uh, at first, that used to bother me because it, become, it became boring. And I've heard this before, and I would cope with it until I realized, well, uh, I, I'm not about to give Aunt Esther this Dharma teaching. First of all, she's not a practitioner, and even the sutra talks about people who are uninstructed. She's uninstructed about this. So I'm not going to say, just, just watch it, Aunt Esther. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can say that to you, though. <laughs> and she would take tremendous delight. At a certain point, when I saw how much I was uh, not enjoying the conversation because I didn't want her to keep doing this, once I realized the importance of her doing this, and I got into it with her. And so what if I knew everything she was going to say? I could feel such joy in what she was talking about, recreating her childhood. And uh, for my sake, she would always refer to my mother and father and, and so forth, myself when we were young. And I let go of wanting her to be in the present moment. Because for her, wisdom, the best she could do, was to not be in the present moment and to stay where she was. This tendency uh, to, to get stuck in the, in the past uh, is not always joyful. In fact, very often it isn't. Uh, we, uh, one of the burdens that we carry, until you put it down, is the huge burden of the past. Probably everyone or most of us here have a lot that's happened to us in our past. And how you relate to it, and that has everything to do with how we've practiced with our past, it's not about rejecting our past or I can never talk about anything that's over with. It's not using the past in ways that perpetuate the sense of self, that keep that strong and healthy. 
um, in, in short, that und undermine the cutting edge of the practice. Um, I've worked over the years with uh, people who've, who've come from extreme situations, who for one reason or another have wanted to see if meditation could help them. A Holocaust survivor, a few of them, uh, survivors from the gulags, Soviet Union, in other words, political prisoners, and Vietnam veterans. And they have something in common, the ones I work with. And I can't say that meditation was overwhelmingly helpful. They were not like my Aunt Esther. They were not dipping in the past in order to enjoy themselves. Uh, and this is a little harsh, but it's the, it seems accurate. They were in hell. Uh, the person from the gulags, that was 50 years ago. The person from the Holocaust was more than 50 years ago. Vietnam veterans, not so much, they were younger. They were in hell and struggling desperately to stay in hell. It's the only way I can put it. And meditation is, is an invitation to come out of hell. Now, what I'm going to tell you is an, ex is an extreme, but we may have it too, in smaller ways. Some of you have reported fear of freedom, have reported fear of when the mind becomes very empty, very quiet. Um, look, when, when ego hears Dharma teaching, when you first began all this, and for a while, when the me, the sense of me, hears all about the Dharma, it's very happy to start practicing. It sounds like a great idea, because it sounds like me will be a better person. Me is a better person, me more compassionate, me more liberated, uh, me more, uh, having more sympathetic joy. Uh, me having more energy, me not being stressed out, a bigger and better me. It sounds great. But as the practice matures, the ego, which is not stupid, starts to see that, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> it's not that about that at all. It's about the end. I didn't know I signed on to doing myself in. <laughs> I don't want to be on this trip. And so silence. That's, that's part of why it's so hard to leave time. Because past and future is one of the main the materials that we use to, to keep this alive and well. It's very, very nourishing. This is, on a hot day, this shorter quote is better of the Buddha. It comes from the Samyutta Nikaya. Quote, they do not lament over the past. This is another aspect of it. They yearn not for what is to come. In other words, you don't get all caught up in the future. They maintain, you could say, sustain, nourish themselves in the present. A tremendous amount is said here. They sustain themselves in the present. That is, the food of a yogi is the present moment. It's the most nourishing food. Uh, living off the past, living off the future is a little, it's not organic food. It's a little bit like uh, refined, it's, car it's cardboard. Because they're abstractions. These are ideas. Uh, one thing that might, uh, well, let's get to these. No, let me tell you this and then get to the, these uh, people who I, I'll tell you what I discovered with them. Um, this, t this teaching, this sutra, which is on past, present, and future, is about time. 
one of the main insights that is wisdom is beginning to see that uh, thinking is just thinking, that a thought is just a thought. That's a huge piece of wisdom. If you haven't seen it, you will at some point. If you stick around here, you certainly will. That seeing the nature of thought, coming to know what thought really is, is a huge step in terms of liberating yourself. Now, this sutra is about that, except it's about the thoughts about future, past, and present. So it's a big chunk of thoughts. It emphasizes this aspect of thinking about time. time this psychological time is made up of its thought. Not talking about chronological time is as well. Chronological time is very useful. That's why we all gathered here at 7.15. We were able to. So uh, the constant uh, continuation of psychological time and the survival of the ego are really the same thing. So to free yourself from time is to free yourself from suffering, from that which is constantly thinking itself into a, a horrible past, a wonderful past, a magnificent future that's on the way, and then even in the present, uh, selfing about what's happening. It's all about me. Okay. Um, that's not good news to the ego. Now, what is our, the people that I, that I, that I worked with um, had this in common. Um, one or two, two of them did use meditation well. It helped them a lot, one in particular. But for most, it was a totally unrealistic. They came hoping it would free them. But what was very clear is that they weren't sure they really wanted to be free. Uh, the person who was in the gulags had lost her parents and two husbands in the camps. They were intellectuals, writers. Uh, she had two children, no fathers for them, one from each husband. They were both best friends. And she's in this country now. Both her children alternate between Israel and here. And it's a living hell for her. She's terrified of every minute about how her sons are doing. And there's, it's, very, it's almost impossible to help her do something that's pure joy for her. There's such an investment. It's as if, if she were to let go of the loss of her parents, and her husband's, it would be a betrayal of them. Uh, but from where they are, somewhere, I think they would be happy because their, their child and wife could be free and enjoying themselves more. Holocaust victim, it was even more, not my words, literally. Uh, this person, 50 years after the event, was still having nightmares every night, almost. Uh, separated from her parents in France. They were put on a truck. She was uh, sent to a convent where uh, she was uh, protected as being Christian. She was Jewish. And after the war, she was released and came to the United States, married, has a family and so forth. A professor, a very well-known, a famous professor um, uh, in the Boston area. And w wanted to meditate and really had read a lot and really very, very motivated. We couldn't move at all, no matter how much I, she could look at everything else, but not this. It was just, and a few times she broke off the connection with me because she took my trying to strongly encourage her to take a look at what she was telling me about her past as being coarse, insensitive, obdurate, 
And all the three people, the Vietnam veterans included, they're really saying one thing. You can't possibly know what it felt like to be me, how much I suffered. Absolutely true. Now, do I have to know that to lend a helping hand so that they can free themselves because they're the only one who can do it? This uh, person, uh, once she stopped speaking to me for a year, then she came back. To her credit, finally she saw it. And she saw that she was holding on to, to the past in, uh, and that it wasn't working. It was actually quite destructive. And what helped her was a kind of an aside where finally, out of exasperation, I just said, look, Adolf Hitler is alive and well. He's still reaching you from the grave. You're still suffering from that. Do you think your parents uh, are delighted that you're fixated uh, 50 years ago? They want you to have a life. Uh, one thing led to another. She did retreats here. She worked very, very hard. But all I'm saying is that sometimes the attachment to what is over and done with is not that easy uh, to practice with. She was the main, pra of the three, mo the, most pra the, the strongest practitioner. And she did, um, she broke loose of all that. And uh, I think made a lot of, uh, uh, attained a certain degree of freedom that was unquestionable in her own eyes, too. Um, the Vietnam was, Vietnam was the same. Okay, uh, I think you all, you all understand that. It's not necessary. Uh, a tremendous investment. I was working with Thich Nhat Hanh at the time, and he asked me to lead a group. He was, he's always been very interested in working with American veterans of Vietnam, and some of you know that. And he's been quite helpful with some of them. I knew it was a th thankless task for me. I'm not a Vietnam veteran. I was just uh, in the occupation of Germany after World War II. That doesn't count if you're a Vietnam veteran. So I'd, Thich Nhat Hanh asked me to do it. I did it. They were furious with me. It was like I was trying to crash an exclusive club. And the exclusive club was based on shared misery that they all, and fear, terror. And so there was a clutching to the past. And these were meditators, or wanted to be. Uh, my own feeling is that perhaps uh, psychotherapy, and in many cases people did work on therapy, sometimes I think can be more helpful. Of course, it depends on the person. They have to get to the point where they really start to see what they're doing and have a tremendous yearning to be free. Now, our practice of coming back to the present moment again and again and again, that's really all Karada and I is saying, and I think all the teachers here, we have many different ways to say it, come back to the present moment. Why do we have to say it so much? Why do we have to give talks like this? Because apparently there's immense resistance uh, we don't want to be in the present moment. We prefer almost anywhere else. Let me give you an example as to how beneficial it can be. Well, in my own case, this was a turning point in my par particular practice. Uh, one of the reasons we don't want to be in the present moment is that we don't like what's there. It's not just hot or cold. Certain emotions come up. These people certainly did not want to be with just look at, with, in a non-judgmental way, their memories. Okay. Uh, so what we, we humans do, we're brilliant at coping, 
putting up with, um, delaying, I would say escaping. We have an intricate network of ways to escape from the present moment, some of which are presented as quite respectable and even admirable. For example, if you have a good intellect and you're highly educated, particularly some psychological education, you can just explain what's happening to you in psychological terms, and there's a feeling of gratification that you understand it. You might, but it's on a conceptual level, and it, there's not much transformative power. And at a certain point, you see that. It doesn't really work. And so we use tremendous energy to avoid the present moment. And at one point in my own life, some years ago, I realized that there's no escape from suffering. There were certain kinds of suffering I didn't want to look at. Am I alone in this? I think you all understand. And I saw very clearly the tremendous amount of energy I was using to not look at it. And I realized, what if all of that energy that was dispersed in escapes, postponement, uh, future fantasies about how I would be when all this was, when my practice really, when I got enlightened, anything can be used to avoid the present. The future is often used that way, through ideals. Some of you have reported in the groups, like, uh, suffering tremendously because of an I'm not enlightened yet, and I've been practicing for X number of years. Okay. This, there is something called, if I'm not quibbling with enlightenment or awakening, but you can see that kind of um, way of looking at things, which often replaces or deflects attention uh, from looking at, what, of, at the present moment, which will take you in that direction. That's exactly what will take you in that direction. Okay. Um, if all the energy that we used to avoid the present moment were brought together, aggregated, concerted, you would have immense power to look at what you don't want to look at. I saw there's no escape from suffering. I, the Buddha is right. There's an end to suffering, psychological. I, I can't say that I know that all mine is gone, but I've certain see, certainly seen the practice help me with enough of it to know that it's not uh, some fool's tale. So I'm not saying there's no end to suffering, but I'm saying there's no escape from it. In fact, the end to it comes from not escaping. Isn't that the message you're getting over and over and over again? All this sutta is, is still another way of saying the same thing. This in-breath, this out-breath, it starts there. Just be with that. But as you know, it moves from in-breath and out-breath to this bodily sensation, that bodily sensation to this feeling and that feeling, to this mind state and that mind state, until finally you realize, hey, these folks are asking me to just take a look at myself as I am. And the practice, that w choiceless awareness that we've been sketching out has to do with developing the capacity or widening our ability, our capacity, to receive our own experience so that there are no limitations as to what we can let in. Just come what may to widen it. Right now, we have uh, restrictions, what we're willing to look at, what we're not, etc. Uh, not only to widen our capacity to receive our experience, but to receive it in a certain way, directly, intimately, and without judgment. Of course, it's the same thing. 
you're judging it, you're not intimate with it. And so uh, this sutra really starts pointing at all kinds of uh, uh, ways in which the human mind uh, insists on living in an imaginary future or a past that's over with uh, and misses the opportunity to penetrate the present moment. Now, what's so great about the present moment? Well, I suggested some of the things. Uh, I think we're gonna, we'll have to end here. But whatever it is that you think is, let me leave you with a model of practice that I feel honors this teaching. It's consistent with it. Many of you um, have what I would call stepladder vipassana. That's your model. You have, uh, uh, I've done five retreats um, over here. I should, next retreat I'll be up here on the next rung of the ladder. And uh, you have it all, all worked out. And books sometimes sketch it that way. So they give us uh, materials with which to climb that ladder, models of the ladder. They're all different. Uh, one time, uh, one of my teachers, Sung San Sanim, a Korean Zen master, was asked this question. He said, this person was confused. He said, the Tibetans say there are, I don't know, you know, 10, ten levels to, of enlightenment, till, till enlightenment. And the Theravadans say four, and the, the Zen people say this. and so. And so, uh, what is it? What, how many levels are there? And so Sansing just <laughs> leaned forward and said to him, how many, in his broken English, how many you want? <laughs> <laughs> you want four? I give you four. <laughs> you want 15? So you don't have to worry. Way off in the future. <laughs> Ego can say, no problem. It's not going to happen for a long time. <laughs> I can relax. This guy ain't serious. Okay, so we use the quest for certain spectacular experiences that some of you very openly were saying. Not that those experiences, that they exist. But here's the model that I would like to leave us with this evening. I think it's very, very clearly laid out in Joseph's new book, One Dharma. If you go through all the teachings, it's so clear, at least to me, and not only to me, you know, many, that in cutting through all this welter of dogma and different techniques and methods and forms and views of what will happen after we die and how long it will take before we're reborn, and what, it's really endless. Take what, how many you want. What do you want? Uh, it seems to be the, uh, the agreement that our practice is certainly about it's the practice of liberation. I think we all agree on that. And it's through non-clinging. Okay, so... That is t practiced in the moment. In a given moment when you are holding on to something, like a past memory in a certain way, or resisting something else, you're suffering, you're enslaved. There's contraction in the mind and in the body. If you pay attention, you can see it. It's obvious. It's a moment of slavery, of bondage. In one breath, you begin to notice it, and there's a release, and it's a moment of freedom. You're no longer trying to make something be a certain way. Hold it beyond its willingness to be there. Push it beyond its willingness to leave. And so that the, the practice is taking care of now, taking care of now, taking care of now. Now, that 
sets in motion a dynamic energy that will take you to where you want to go, where we all want to go. I'm not saying there aren't, uh, that, there, that there's, it's all static, you know, it's just uh, a myth. But this, it's this style of practice. The stepladder approach is used, and, I, and that can be effective, too, to a point, I think. Some people really need just lots of uh, incentives to roll up their sleeves and get to work. Um, this one, I feel, is, to me, this is big fat, is more mature. It's, first of all, honoring that is all you ever have is the present moment. So even if you are fully awakened, where will that happen? It can only happen in the present moment. If you're suffering, where's that happening? It's happening right here and right now. Any of these wonderful practices we're talking about, when are you going to put them into practice? Now. That's all there is. And these teachings are an attempt to uh, eat time rather than be eaten by time, if you recall Mahagosananda's statement. Uh, to not be devoured by psychological time. Of course, there's much more to go, but I think we'll uh, give it a rest tonight. Can we have a few moments of silence? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.